Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. You're listening to a special episode on the 2020 AICPA Conference on Current SEC and PCOB Developments. If you weren't able to join, we have you covered. Joining me to report on the highlights are Val Wieman and Kyle Moffat, both partners in our national office who've been taking furious notes over the past two days to bring you this content in real time. Val and Kyle are quickly becoming our industry conference beat reporters. You may recall they recently covered FEI's Corporate Financial Reporting Insights Conference for us. I'm happy to have them back. I have a feeling this episode is going to be packed with observations, so let's hear what happened. So Val, Kyle, thanks so much for joining me today. To kick things off, Val, can you give us a quick rundown on the conference? So format, attendees, and if you have any observations on key themes. Sure, Heather. It's the AICPA's highly popular annual conference and obviously focused on financial reporting. This year, in an entirely virtual format, it was kind of hard to appreciate what it's like to be in a room with 2,000 practitioners, preparers and accountants all jockeying for a front row seat, Um, but it went off fairly seamlessly uh, to their credit. The speeches and panels had representatives from the regulators like the SEC and the PCOB and their staffs, both the FASB and the IASB presented uh, and included a variety of sessions that included, you know, preparer panels, directors, investors, and auditors. The conference started on Monday uh, and ended, I think, about an hour ago as we're taping this. So Val, very interesting that you mentioned is that we're literally recording this on December 9th and we'll be releasing it on the 10th. And it's got to be one of the quickest turnaround podcasts that we do. So with that, let's jump into today's content. And Kyle, let's start with a panel that I know was held at the end of the day Monday, and that would be the enforcement division. And their feedback is always of great interest to our listeners. So what did we hear from them? Yeah, you know, the panelists were all accounting staff from the enforcement division. They spent a a decent chunk of time discussing particular cases. But what really stood out to me was the emphasis on internal controls cases or or their books and records cases. The enforcement division's chief accountant, Matt Jakes, also discussed the division's ongoing EPS initiative in some recently settled cases in this arena. This initiative applies risk-based analytics to the accounting and financial disclosure data to identify outliers, identify and and essentially investigate improper accounting adjustments. And so companies need to be careful uh, to ensure that their accounting and disclosure controls are sufficient to provide assurance that quarter-end adjustments comply with GAAP and they're not serving to, to hide weaker than expected performance. Jake's also mentioned that the enforcement staff compares the disclosures of companies within particular industries, it looks for outliers. And so um, that's something that we have not heard the staff doing, but they've been doing it uh, with respect to benchmarking of the COVID-19 disclosures. Okay. So definitely something for restaurants to be aware of. And I know, Kyle, another area where we always get a lot of questions is new rulemaking from the SEC. So can you give us some insight into what was discussed at the conference regarding any new rules or amendments? So the staff spent a lot of time talking about Rules 310, the guarantor financial statements. They spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the amendments to the acquisitions and dispositions of businesses, pro forma amendments. 
I'll talk a little bit about just some of the more current ones, um, the more current amendments. So there was uh, a panel of the staff of Corp Fin's chief accountant's office discussed the amendments uh, to Regulation SK on the description of business, legal proceedings, and risk factors. So these amendments are now effective. So the staff has indicated that they're going to expect compliance with these rules. Um, I'd encourage listeners to read the amendments. One noteworthy change here was to require a description of the company's human capital resources, including any human capital measures or objectives that the company uses in managing its business. The staff highlighted two principles uh, to keep in mind for preparing these disclosures, the first of which is the disclosure is only required to the extent it would be material to an understanding of a company's business. And second, the registrants need to be thinking about its own facts and circumstances when tailoring its disclosures. The staff also discussed the amendments to Regulation SK relating to MDNA and selected financial data. As a reminder, these amendments eliminate the requirement to provide selected financial data. The amendments also eliminate the requirement to provide selected quarterly data and replaced it with a principles-based requirement to disclose the material retrospective changes. Now, they did provide a couple of examples that might trigger that requirement to show uh, the impact on the quarters. And the two examples were discontinued operations and material error corrections. The staff also codified the MDNA interpretive guidance, and that, and that goes all the way back to 2003, um, while at the same time, they streamlined some of the required disclosures. One new item to point out here is the option for a registrant to compare their most recently completed fiscal quarter to either the corresponding quarter of the prior fiscal year, which is the current requirement, or the immediately preceding quarter. So that's something else to, to take a look at. They also called out specific changes to eliminate the contractual obligations table, since that information is largely captured elsewhere throughout the filing. And then they also highlighted the explicit requirement uh, to provide a critical accounting estimate disclosure in MDNA, including both the quantitative and qualitative information and why each estimate is subject to uncertainty. And keep in mind, this may require a sensitivity analysis. The staff did highlight that the rules are not effective yet, since they have not been published in the register. And since the register is not part of the SEC, the staff has no insight on when that will occur. So keep that in mind when you're preparing your upcoming 10K. And one other point here on the early adoption of these amendments, registrants can adopt on an item by item basis only if the registrant fully complies with the requirements of that particular item. In other words, if you choose to early adopt one of the amendments, let's say to item 301, and you want to eliminate the selected financial data, you can do so. And you don't have to comply with the amended rules on MDNA until the mandatory compliance date. Heather, a couple of observations uh, on some of those rules that Kyle was talking about. First relates to the human capital disclosures. So the SEC's rules are really just the latest foray into expanding the environmental, social, and governance disclosures. Uh, and that's obviously a current, you know, a lot of interest coming from a lot of quarters uh, was mentioned in a lot of sessions at the conference. Uh, and the two things that were mentioned most commonly at the conference were the SASB and its recently announced merger with the International Integrated Reporting Council, because that was seen as a step to creating a single global corporate reporting framework, which a lot of people are looking for. Uh, the SASB actually has an exposure draft out currently on its conceptual framework and its rules of procedure. Those are the SASB's sort of foundational documents that govern how they create their standards and then also the characteristics of those standards and the objectives uh, that they're trying to accomplish. 
At the same time, you have the IFRS Foundation consultation paper, and that's gauging interest in global sustainability standards as well. One possible option that they put into that proposal is that the foundation could create a new sustainable standards board, which would be basically a sister to the IASB. And that entity would have an initial focus on climate-related matters, or at least in the proposal they're suggesting, it would be narrowly focused on climate-related matters. But both the SASB and the IFRS Foundation items are uh, open for comment through the end of the year. I know we're still working on our responses, so there's still time if people want to comment on those initiatives. And then maybe one other point, Kyle mentioned the rules on interim reporting and the uh, comparison of quarter to quarter. And I just wanted to mention that the FASB does have an active project to look at amendments to ASC 270 on interim reporting, uh, where they're intending to add a principle-based requirement to discuss the significant events or transactions that have a material effect on the company. So Val and Kyle both, thanks for those observations. Kyle, I want to go back to you, though, just with one question, because I know I sort of lost track when you were talking about it because you ran through a lot of rules. Can you just give us a quick summary of which ones are effective now and then what we should look at? to expect in 2021? So for the business legal proceedings and risk factors discussion, that's something that is already effective. So that was effective already. November 9th, I believe, was the date. So for the uh, amendments to Regulation SK for items 301, 302, and 303, um, which is your selected financial data, selected quarterly data, and MD&A, that will be effective once it is published in the Federal Register 30 days from that date is when you can early adopt. And then later in the year is when mandatory uh, compliance is expected. All right. So people who are interested in early adoption should keep an eye out for that. Hopefully we'll get published soon so they would be able to do it for their year-end filings, but more to come on that. And we also have some publications that we'll link in the show notes if people want more information. So then why don't we move on to another topic? Um, And Val, I'll direct this one to you. I know that professional accounting fellows at the SEC always present on various technical topics. And just curious if there's anything that you would highlight from those speeches this year. You know, it's a really nice opportunity to get the fellows, you know, sort of that public forum. I know that it was nice to see some familiar faces for some of the PwC fellows who were there, but their presentations are always really facts and circumstances specific based on consultations that they've received. I know that this year they covered a variety of topics, including performance obligations and principal versus agent assessments and revenue recognition the accounting for payments to a vendor, which I know you covered in a in a recent podcast, and the related cash flow presentation. There were also questions about equity method investments and determining significant influence, the primary beneficiaries on VIEs, consolidations, uh, right of use asset abandonments under leases. I'm sure I'm missing a couple of topics, but I think the important thing here is that all of the professional accounting fellow speeches are publicly available. Um, So those are already posted on the SEC site and are pretty easily accessible if you want to look at those details. Okay, great. So Kyle, let me go back to you with my next question. And another area where I know we get a lot of inquiries from clients is on comment letter trends. And I did have you and Ryan Spencer on in November on a podcast talking about comment letters. But did we hear anything new at the conference that listeners should consider? This is an area, I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot of interest in, you know, 
typically the staff does conduct a comment letter panel. Last year, they did that. This year, they did not. They actually had a different session in its place. In this particular panel um, that the chief accountant's office presented, they talked a lot about you know MDNA matters. They talked about COVID-related disclosures. They talked about non-GAAP measures, metrics, and, and even uh, touched on segments. Um, then the staff continues to push registrants for more detailed disclosures within MDNA. One of the items we continue to see and talk about is the expectations surrounding COVID-19-related disclosures. They specifically mentioned uh, incentive programs for technology companies that operate platforms, uh, so your ride-sharing platforms or food delivery services. You know, that seems like it's focused on a particular industry, but those concepts should be applied more broadly. I mean, so to the extent that there's arrangements that have a material impact on the income statement line items, the staff's going to expect to see those programs discussed. So if it impacts cost of services or sales and marketing expense, or even if it leads to negative revenues, um, that's something the staff is going to be looking for. And one other point here, too, uh, to mention is, you know, the staff didn't mention supply chain finance programs, but there was uh, there were a few other panelists that did mention these programs. We, we expect the staff will continue to focus on this in their reviews. The staff also is pursuing a number of non-GAAP issues in its reviews. You know, the areas of focus always seem to be the prominence for the measure, clarity around its disclosures, the use of individually tailored accounting principles, um, and even the staff will object to measures. And so one of the areas that they seem to, to have been highlighting lately are revenues that are adjusted to present a non-GAAP revenue measure. So, so that's something the staff seems to be uh, looking out for. They've also been objecting to, to how companies are labeling or titling the measure. And that's something I think we're going to see continue. Um, they're also focused on that from the perspective of uh, KPIs and metrics as well. So when dealing with non-GAAP adjustments, you know, obviously there, there are a number of things that people consider, but I think the best way to explain it or discuss it is when thinking about COVID. And so, you know, the staff, when they're looking at COVID-related non-GAAP disclosures, they're going to think about whether the adjustment's directly attributable to the COVID-19, whether it's incremental, and whether the adjustment is based on actuals and not hypothetical amounts. So think of a situation where a company wants to, to adjust for lost revenues. Well, those would be hypotheticals and not actual amounts. I guess the, the final area that they talked a little bit about, they, they did talk about metrics or KPIs and really focused on their expectations surrounding the metrics. And so when presenting a metric, the staff's going to expect a, a definition of the metric. They're going to want to see the calculation or, or have companies disclose the calculation. And then also, you know, companies need to provide the reasons why they use the metric and why it's useful for investors. One of the things they did highlight um, as a practice would be encouraging registrants to provide disclosures and earning releases. Um, and those earnings releases, although it's not required, they believe that that would be a good disclosure um, that would also clarify how companies are presenting their metrics. One other point to mention here, they did briefly mention segments. Um, they indicated that they've been objecting to certain instances when companies present revenues in the segment footnote that is not being presented on, on a gap basis. And so um, that was one thing that stood out. 
and going back and looking at a few of the comments and thinking about some of the issues the staff has been raising, um, they're definitely be focused on presentation of external revenues determined on a gap basis in the uh, segment footnote. So thanks, Kyle. Definitely helpful insight and something good to add to the conversation that we had last month uh, with Ryan. So then Val, shifting gears a little bit and focusing on the FASB, I know one of the topics they discussed were their post-implementation reviews. And that was something that they also spoke about at a board meeting last week. But it's an area where I know there's a lot of interest. So what did we hear at the conference? So from what I understand, uh, Hillary Salo, the FASB Technical Director's comments um, at the conference this week were consistent with some of the comments she made at the board meeting last week. Maybe the one I'll focus on is Cecil, although I'll let you know that she shared very preliminary views on what the feedback is that they're hearing. Uh, and that's important to know because it may not be representative of the full population of feedback that they'll eventually get. And therefore, it may not be what's included in our final report, but maybe just three items that I'll, I'll highlight. And as I said, they went through a much longer list. But first is that users and analysts raised questions about the accounting for purchased financial assets that do not qualify for purchased financial assets with credit deterioration or PCD assets. Those assets are uh, initially measured at fair value. And because the CECL model has you record the credit losses up front, there was some concern expressed that this seems to double count the credit losses. The second item is about troubled debt restructuring or TDRs. That was carried forward from the prior gap and was amended slightly. But for entities that have already adopted CECL, there's some thought that the cost and complexity may not be worth the benefit that you receive from that model. Uh, and therefore, they're wondering whether some disclosures around restructuring activity may satisfy users uh, and they wouldn't have to actually apply the full model. And then lastly, on the theme of disclosure, some of the users and analysts commented that uh, there's some diversity in practice on what's being disclosed and the level of detail. And I think they're looking for more some consistency. The FASB directed the staff to look into the non-PCD and the uh, TDR items, but it's not clear if that's going to result in further standard setting. They could also decide that they just need additional disclosures, but uh, there's more to come on that. Right. And definitely, I think an area where there'll be a lot of potentially different views will so be interesting to see what comes next. And then I guess speaking of areas where there are a lot of different views, I know they also discussed the Goodwill Project and that maybe that came up in a few different places. So what did we hear about that? They did. And that's one that's fairly polarizing. There's a lot of different camps of thought on what one should do with sort of the day two goodwill. Uh, and it's actually an area where uh, U.S. GAAP and IFRS may unconverge, if that's a word, or conversions may be lost. Hillary noted that the FASB is currently favoring a hybrid model. So instead of the pure impairment model that we currently have, that the hybrid would look at a period of impairment followed by a period of amortization. Now, in a separate session was interesting, a former FASB chair noted that she actually wasn't in favor of amortization and thought that uh, this is a common knee-jerk reaction in times of crisis is to look at the amortization of goodwill. But on the other side of the um, sort of spectrum, you have the IASB. Uh, now they, and by their own, their own words said that by very slimmest of margins, they issued a discussion paper that called for retaining the impairment only model. Um, but because the margin was very slim on the vote at the IASB when they released the paper, it does ask for feedback on both models. So it has the pros and cons of the impairment model as well as an amortization model. So the comment period for the ISB is actually still open. That was extended through the end of the year as an accommodation in the COVID environment. Um, so there's still a chance to comment there. 
On the FASB side, there's actually not a current uh, proposal, but the FASB staff is scheduled to meet with the board at next week's meeting, that's December 16th, and discuss alternatives on how that's going to proceed. And that's supposed to be a a decision-making meeting. So I think we'll see more on that um, pretty soon. So Val, definitely interesting observations. And as you said, this is a very polarizing topic. So more to come in 2021 and something to keep an eye on. Let's turn our attention then, Val, to one other thing. You know, Kyle mentioned COVID-19 in the context of non-GAAP, but other than that, the two of you have been remarkably silent on that topic, which seems odd considering the year that we've just had. So is this something that came up at the conference or, or how was it addressed? It did, Heather. And it's almost sad that we sort of looked through that element into the core substance of the discussions, but it was really mentioned at every session. It was covered by every presenter who talked about, you know, from a regulatory or standard setting standpoint, how they had responded, what training materials had been provided, Uh, There was a separate session on actually the economic impact of COVID and what the recovery may or may not look like and how this particular recession downturn is markedly different from any that's come before it and why. Uh, They talked about it with regard to the PCOB inspection cycle. uh, And there was actually a panel from uh, partners in big four national offices uh, where they discussed specifically the accounting complications uh, that were generated by COVID-19 and the related economic impact. So it was pretty pervasive throughout the conference, including, and I meant to mention this when Kyle was speaking earlier, but um, Sagar uh, Tiotia, the chief accountant at the SEC, he mentioned that the SEC will be releasing new guidance shortly. I think he mentioned this week, I'd have to check on the timing of that, but that we think will be kind of similar to what the SEC has released um, twice before since the pandemic began. So basically guidance for registrants to consider at year end uh, with regard to their disclosures, including the impact of COVID. And then maybe last, I'll mention that the FASB chair and the ISB vice chair um, had an interesting take on the importance of assessing standard setting in the current environment, but not having a knee-jerk reaction. So not having an automatic view that what the views are today require long-term standard setting. So uh, that perhaps it's not a good idea to make decisions in the current environment, that you need to be measured in their approach, and that they want to separate what is due to the immediate crisis versus what perhaps would be to the benefit of you know stakeholders in the longer term. One thing on the SEC release, because I know it's something that people will be very interested in. I think they can definitely look out for updates in our newsletter, which I know you edit. So I thought I would highlight that. So um, with that, then before we wrap up, anything else from the conference that we should highlight? Yeah, I think I may have skipped your question at the very beginning of uh, this podcast on sort of the overall theme. Um, so it's I'm happy to sort of summarize it that way as we as we come to a close here. But There were a lot of views on the future of the profession. So as I mentioned at the onset, there's a lot of preparers and auditors, but the AICPA, obviously it's their conference. So they're very prominent. Uh, We heard from the president of uh, the AICPA and several others where they talked about the future of the profession, the importance of attracting and retaining talent, including diverse talent uh, and diversity. If I was going to talk about themes would probably be another one that I'd mention. Uh, They talked about digital upskilling and the need for new skills and what the future professional looks like. And there was actually a a pretty long discussion on an AICPA project to reimagine the audit from a clean sheet of paper as if you had access to sort of 
if in the beginning when they invented audits, that you had access to all of today's technology and what that would look like. And they're actually piling it at the moment and are hoping to have uh, what they refer to as a minimum viable product uh, sort of mid next year, which I think is just a really interesting take on the profession. Uh, and then lastly, they discussed changes to the CPA exam. So the core exam is going to be the same. Um, there'll still be one composite license, but there will be disciplines that can be elected by each individual, kind of like a, a minor. Um, so you can choose to have a concentration in data. You can choose to have a concentration in tax. Uh, and that's hopefully going to be in the exam beginning in 2024. But the good news for a lot of our audience is that it will not impact those of us with current licenses. Yeah, so I was just thinking that. So although it's interesting to contemplate what major or minor that you may want. So, all right, well, both, thank you very much. A lot of great insight and definitely a lot to look ahead as we think about 2021 and beyond. Now, to wrap things up today, as you both know, I always like to end things on a lighter note. And given the time of year, I thought what we could talk about is favorite outdoor winter activity. And I can go first. Mine is downhill skiing. And we normally go every year at the holidays. Um, we did tentatively have something planned for this year and local. But given what's going on in California, not sure that's going to happen. But nonetheless, still my favorite activity. So um, maybe I can look forward to that also in 2021. Uh, Val, how about you? Not a big skier. I would say one of my favorite things in sort of the realm of simple pleasures is around this time of year, we actually just like walking the neighborhoods. Um, so getting our step count in, but also the lights, the decorations, it gets dark so early now. So to take a walk and to uh, appreciate the local beauty and the simple pleasure passion. Yes. And I know at least in my neighborhood, a lot more decorations than normal this year. So that is something to look forward to. And Kyle, how about you? So I have to admit that that is something I spent a lot of time on putting up holiday lights. So, uh, but I would, I would echo Val's, what she said. I, th I think, you know, walking around, driving around, seeing the, the sites, I'm new to New Jersey. So seeing the areas has been a lot of fun. And, and now that we have some snow on the ground, I think that even makes it more appealing to get outside and, and check things out. Not a big skier, but that's something that uh, I hopefully can get to do uh, within the next few months if possible. So we'll see. Excellent. Well, it sounds very pleasant and um, really appreciate, again, all the insight. And thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. Thank you to Val and Kyle for their timely insights. And thank you for tuning in. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. Next Tuesday, we're bringing you tax year-end reminders and on Thursday, we're releasing the last episode in our What's Next in Tech for Finance series. So that you never miss an episode of any of our podcasts, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.